Welcome to the Evolutionary Parenting Podcast. I'm your host, Tracy Castles, PhD. Now I'm going to be honest that I don't know of a single pregnancy that didn't involve some level of stress. I think the entire act of carrying a baby and everything that goes along with it is stressful in its own right. But sometimes there are stressors that are even greater. Sometimes it's chronic stress from work or life events, or sometimes it's greater stress from natural disasters or even war. Many of us have heard about how bad prenatal stress is for babies, but how much is too much? What are these effects and how are we able to quantify what is happening for babies in the womb? Joining me this week is Dr. Gerald Meyer, who has revolutionized the way in which we assess and think about prenatal stress and the effects on our children. He brings the nuance that is desperately needed to this discussion, and he can help us see where we may need to be looking in the future. I am so pleased to have with me today Dr. Gerald Meyer. He's a professor emeritus in the Department of Psychological and Brain Sciences at the University of Massachusetts at Amherst. Over his career, he's conducted research in two main areas, the neurobehavioral effects of exposure to abused drugs during development and the hormonal response to acute and chronic stress. Our discussion today will focus on Dr. Meyer's research on stress during development, including his pioneering work to develop technologies to assess the effects of prenatal stress exposure and subsequent outcomes. Thank you so much for being here today. Uh, Thank you, Tracy. Uh, I'm delighted to be here and uh, share some of my research with your audience. And right before retirement, too, as I just found out, I'm getting you before you close the door for good. Yeah, well, that's that's the way it goes, you know. It's uh, but I've had a, a great career, and uh, I'm very pleased and and proud of what we've done. It it really is amazing work, and I'm quite excited to get into that depth of discussion there about what you've been pioneering in this realm, really. And I will admit right now that when I I read your paper and all the the different nuances to stress research. It always shocks me when I realize how little I knew before and how little, all all the flaws in the research in terms of what we take from it. So I know that's a topic we'll get into, but it was really, really interesting. But before we get to that, as I always ask people, how on earth did you get to this? What led to these, I mean, the duality path here of both the substance abuse kind of exposure, as well as stress, where, where did this come from? Yeah, well, I think like many academics, it's been kind of a, a crooked career path with lots of changes, switches in emphasis. Uh, so my interest in development actually dates back to the beginning of my graduate studies at the University of uh, Wisconsin in Madison. And uh, I actually went to graduate school with an interest in studying the biochemistry of memory. That is, uh, during that time, which was actually back in the 70s, I'm showing my age here, um, the, uh, there was a lot of interest in, in how, how do memories get encoded into the brain chemically? And the professor that I went to lo- work with in Madison was doing some cutting edge research in that area. So that's what I tr- attracted me to his lab. But after my first year in the lab, uh, when I was just helping out another graduate student, uh, and I had to pick my master's thesis project. He said, well, you could you know, continue on this memory research. Or he said, I have this other area of work that nobody else in the lab right now is working on, which involves the stress system and the hormones from the adrenal glands, uh, these uh, corticosteroids. And uh, uh, might you be interested in that? 
So I started looking into the research that was being done in that area. And I discovered that around that time, uh, some researchers at other universities were doing things like giving um, modest uh, kinds of stress to baby rats and mice, and then looking at how it affected their later behavior and affected their hormonal responses. And I thought, well, gee, that's interesting. You know, maybe that's something I could follow on. And so I ended up doing a, a master's project on the effects of different kinds of rearing experiences in monkeys on, uh, on their uh, HPA, that is hypothalamic pituitary adrenal, which we'll talk about axis and uh, the hormone cortisol that is produced by that uh, endocrine system uh, in, in those animals. So that got me started. Uh, on uh, stress and um, hormonal responses. And then later in my uh, postdoctoral, my first postdoctoral uh, position, which was in South Carolina, I was working with a group of uh, neuropharmacologists. So we were studying the effects of different kinds of drugs and that got me started on that. And then later it made sense to put the two areas together uh, in, in terms of the effects of abused drugs during development. So that's, you can see how, you know, it, it, the, the labs that you work in, the ideas that you have, have a big impact on uh, where you're going to go with your career. And of course, also what's going on outside of you, what other people are doing, making advances that uh, excite you and, and that make you interested in a particular problem. It, it is funny. It is. It's all this kind of combination of part luck as to what's going on at the time that you start in and then what happens after that. So that's really interesting. I, I know we're talking about stress today. And before we get there, I do want to have this kind of discussion with you because it was a concern I know we had back and forth in the email before is that when you talk about stress and development, and we're talking about stress during pregnancy, during, you know, the prenatal period here, it tends to get people really worried. I think, you know, having been pregnant twice myself and knowing I had stress during pregnancies, I remember that concern. Oh my God, what's happening? What am I doing? Is this irreversible? And all the kind of information we're told makes it seem like stress is one of the most horrible things you can experience during pregnancy, you are damaging your children forever. And mm. I know from working with families, that is something that really comes up postnatally as well. For a lot of families, they worry about what happens. So I want to talk briefly about if, if you can tell us more about what do we know? Is it this bad? Should parents be worried beyond belief? Are we right to say I had this kind of hard moment in pregnancy? oh my God, my kid's ruined forever um, mm. and accept it and move on with life and say, well, that's that's what it is. And there we go. Or is there something else in the research that can help us interpret these experiences perhaps in a less catastrophic way? Okay. I, I agree with you completely that it, it's really important point. And uh, my wife and I don't have any kids, but you know, we have obviously other members of our family and friends who have children. So uh, I can well appreciate um, these kinds of concerns. Um, and we all have stress in our lives uh, uh, frequently. So that there's, there's a lot of issues here that I think people need to um, concern themselves with. You know, first of all, there's, there's sort of different kinds and levels of stress. Uh, some researchers in the field have used the term toxic stress and toxic stress, which 
you know, as the name suggests, would be the most concerning kinds of stress. And when we're talking about toxic stress, we're really talking about uh, unremitting, chronic, continuous, over and over again, or, or not stopping kinds of stresses, especially in individuals who, who lack the coping mechanisms and lack the, for example, social support networks to help them deal with the stress. And so, you know, regardless of pregnancy or not, um, that's, that, that's one important issue. Uh, and then, of course, there are, there are good, good stressors. Um, I, I'm more of a little bit more of a thrill seeker than my wife. And so uh, I love roller coasters. Uh, I, I went skydiving a number of years ago. And she would never do any of those things, God forbid. But um, I, I like that kind of rush that you get. So that's, that's a good kind of stress. Um, but getting back to the, the pregnancy thing. So um, I think there's three, three um, take-home messages or three important points for women and, uh, and families to keep in mind when they think about uh, stress and, and what impact it could have on their child. First of all, when we think about the, the scientific research that's done in this area, and of course this is true in, in almost all areas of research, we're talking about changes that are reflected in averages. So we're comparing uh, offspring of stre stressed women who, who have encountered more stress during their pregnancy to women who have experienced less stress and compared their, their children or their babies on various kinds of measures, but we're looking at averages. And so there's nothing that's predicting what stress you're experiencing may or may not have on your particular child. So first of all, it doesn't mean if, it, if it's happening on an average basis that your child is going to have some kind of negative consequence of stress. That's number one. The second point is that the clearest that when, when I reviewed the research, the clearest cases of um, adverse stress effects on offspring, especially um, continuing, you know, continuing over time, is when um, there has been sort of catastrophic um, uh, experiences of stress and what we would call natural experiments. So obviously it's, it's not ethical, obviously it's not ethical to take uh, randomly selected groups of women and expose some of them to some severe stressor and others not as a control group. Obviously we can't do that, we wouldn't wanna do that. But nature provides us unfortunately with uh, what we call natural experiments. So these are, um, for example, natural disasters. Could also be wars, things like what's happening now, now right now in the world in, in Ukraine, um, tragically. But uh, a lot of the research in this area has been done uh, on the basis of natural disasters. So that is um, uh, climate, uh, climate-related, uh, weather-related uh, disasters. And so I want to mention three here, that uh, two of which already are prominently present in research in this area. Uh, one occurred in 1997. There were two severe floods of the Red River in North Dakota. 
um, several months apart, which caused uh, tremendous property damage, loss of power, difficulty in getting food and potable water and so forth. The second one, just about a year later, uh, might've been even worse. Uh, in 1998, there was in September, there was a severe ice storm in the province of Quebec in Canada. And millions of people, millions of households lost power in some cases for as much as 40 days. Uh, so this was a terrible uh, um, uh, catastrophe. And researchers in both cases took the opportunity to uh, study women who had been pregnant during the time of the stress produced by the uh, disaster. And you could measure the amount of stress in a couple different ways. Uh, you could um, actually ask the women to rate the amount of stress that they experienced during their preg pregnancy using various psychological measures. Or you could have sort of, quote, objective measures, like how long was the power out? How much difficulty did you have in getting food or water? Things like that. And then followed the kids who were born later uh, for uh, some number of years, depending on the study. And then the third one is more recent, which has to do with Hurricane Maria. And in particular, the island of Puerto Rico that was hit very hard. And again, uh, many families were without electricity, were without food and water for a number of years. And there's a researcher um, at the University of Michigan who uh, I know is uh, studying uh, women and their kids uh, who were pregnant during that time. And there's, she hasn't yet come out with a lot of work, but I'm expecting to see uh, more studies, more research on that area coming out afterwards. So um, the important point is that these are really severe and long lasting stressors, much more than what the rest of us experience unless we're in you know, some kind of similar situation. So that's point number two. And then the third point, I think, is that we've come to realize, uh, you know, child psychologists, child development researchers have come to realize that um, children are amazingly resilient and the human brain is amazingly resilient and has the ability to um, adapt, has the ability to recover from uh, various um, adverse um, experiences. And so... Um, so even, even when stress might occur, uh, there's no reason to expect that when the uh, child is raised in a positive, um, supportive, uh, warm environment, that uh, they wouldn't be fine. So I want to just touch on that last piece, because I think that's the piece that often gets missed when we talk about resiliency, is I know in mainstream kind of parenting circles, people talk about resiliency as if it just occurs on its own without anything else. But as I think you've said, and I know when I've spoken to other researchers, it really is no, it, you still have to provide that supportive, warm, loving, positive environment that enables that resiliency to kind of come through. Is that fair? Yes, um, I think what, what I think what's fair to say is that we have an interaction between uh, a child's uh, innate, if you will, disposition uh, traits to be resilient, uh, interacting with the kind of support, uh, love, support 
that um, the family can provide. So um, even in the worst cases, uh, uh, like um, the Romanian uh, um, uh, orphanage uh, uh, situation during the Coescu regime, where uh, many babies were institutionalized in orphanages under horrible conditions, uh, very impoverished environments that they grew up in. And we see there, there's a range of outcomes. So some children were able to overcome as they grew up, overcome that impoverished uh, early environment better than others. So even under the same conditions, some children have, have an ability, but clearly, clearly um, the uh, equally, if not more important is the uh, environment, the, the, the postnatal, the family environment that the child is raised in. Yeah, which I hope does comfort some people because I think, you know, when we think about prenatal stress, sometimes it feels like it's out of our control. And just like the examples you gave, I remember that ice storm, I'm in Canada and I remember that one in Quebec, it was yeah. horrifying. Um, so many times we are helpless in many ways. And so I think it's really nice to have something that parents can focus on where they do have some control and you do have control over that postnatal environment um, in terms of support, in terms of warmth, in terms of, of love and positivity and everything. So I hope for parents, as we get into this discussion, keep all of that in mind. Um, yeah. It is not an end game. It, you may have had stress. You may have had, you know, even severe stress. I'm not discounting. I know people that have had lost their homes, you know, a house fire in the midst of pregnancy, that's going to be longer term. You lose everything. You're trying to balance that. So there are definitely things that can happen, but you still have ways you can support your child going forward afterwards. So. Right. It's not, it's not deterministic. Exactly. Yes. And so let's keep that in mind. So now let's dive in. So you have this paper, um, the assessment of prenatal stress-related cortisol exposure and the focus on cortisol accumulation in hair and nails, which was recently published in developmental psychobiology. And we're going to get into that. So one of the things that I need to set the stage for, now that we know that stress is not forevermore, we're not ruined for life, we don't have to throw the baby out with the bathwater, so to speak, um, is understanding the development of the HPA axis and this cortisol response. Because I think it's really important for us to understand why would we even have this effect? Why are we even caring about prenatal stress? And clearly, this system does start to develop in utero, mm -hmm. but how on earth does that happen? What is actually happening throughout this fetal development of the stress system? Because there was a lot of stuff that I didn't understand. And so I'm going to have to clarify for myself, but also others, sure. um, as to what it is, what's happening in development for this system. And so we know why we would be concerned about it being affected by other elements of maternal stress. Right. Sure. There, there's a lot of stuff sort of embedded in that question. And so what I'd like to do is really backtrack a little bit and talk about um, first, very briefly, uh, the uh, endocrine responses to stress, and then dive a little bit more into what constitutes the HPA axis to make sure that all of your listeners um, understand the terminology and, and what we're talking about when we talk about some of these hormones. And then we'll finally get to the point about development of the system. So when we're, when we're stressed, uh, a lot of the focus of, of endocrinologists 
uh, is on the adrenal glands. So these are these two glands that sit on top of your kidneys. And the adrenal glands have two parts to them. One is the outer part, the cortex, which secretes um, um, hormones, steroid hormones. They're, they're based on cholesterol. So they're made from the molecule cholesterol, uh, like cortisol, which we're going to be talking a lot about. And then the inner part uh, of the adrenal gland is called the medulla, and that secretes uh, adrenaline or epinephrine. And those two parts of the gland are independently regulated, independently activated, but both parts are activated by stress. So when you're stressed, your, um, the inside of your adrenal gland secretes more adrenaline, and that happens very fast. So that's like the first thing. And there are whole sorts of, I won't get into it, but there's whole sorts of bodily responses to adrenaline. We all kind of sense when yeah. we've had an adrenaline rush. Like I was, I was talking about the skydiving and the roller coasters. That's certainly a part of it. Yeah. Um, but then a slightly slower response is of the outer part, the adrenal cortex with the cortisol response. And the reason that the um, adrenal cortex takes a little longer to respond is because it's actually um, that system has three levels to it, and each one has its own hormone. So we talk about the hypothalamic pituitary adrenal axis. So it starts in the hypothalamus, which is a small evolutionarily ancient part of the brain. It's at the base of the brain. And it's a very important, even though it's small, it's very important for the regulation of mood, of uh, the endocrine system, uh, of arousal, um, a whole bunch of a whole bunch of different functions, uh, and phys various physiological functions besides just hormonal. Uh, and there's a small group of nerve cells in the hypothalamus that secrete a hormone called CRH. So that's abbreviation. So the CRH. Uh, uh, when it's released by those nerve cells, goes to the pituitary gland. The pituitary, the, what sometimes called the master gland, is uh, right underneath the base of the brain, and it's connected to the brain by a very thin stalk. And so the CRH travels through the blood to the pituitary, and then in the pituitary, there's a group of cells that respond to the CRH by secreting a second hormone called ACTH, again, an abbreviation. And the ACTH goes into our systemic, our whole body circulation. And when it reaches the adrenal cortex, it stimulates it to release cortisol. So all of that takes a few minutes. So when you're stressed, you actually don't start seeing much of a rise of cortisol until a few minutes later. It's the adrenaline that, that gets immediately like dumped into the blood and causes that very rapid, um, what's sometimes called the fight or flight response. Part of that is due to the release of adrenaline uh, so, from the inside of the adrenal gland. So can I ask one quick question as I, sure. I think about this? So when you have that adrenaline rush that you described, that first feeling, does that automatically mean you're then going to move towards that other system or can you have one without the other? Is yeah. that? They're, they're almost, uh, they're almost always coordinated. So Perfect. thank um, you. Yes. Um, so before we move, move to the effects of stress on this system, which I haven't really you know gotten into yet, 
Um, we need to understand that uh, cortisol and also um, adrenaline, they're much more than just stress hormones. So they're both absolutely required for normal health. And uh, so, so they're, they're, there's constantly a certain amount of cortisol and a certain amount of adrenaline in your blood circulating around, affecting your various organs. Cortisol in particular affects nearly every organ in the body, including the brain. It gets into the brain from the blood. It can affect your mood. Uh, it can affect your memory. It, it, it helps promote uh, the storage, the consolidation of emotional memories, which I think is a fascinating thing because uh, various kinds of stress are associated with emotional responses and emotional offense. And cortisol actually helps works with um, uh, adrenaline to help uh, us form and keep those memories. So that's a really fascinating side point for another discussion. But um, anyway, so um, so stress adds on to the already circulating cortisol in your blood. And what happens is when you are, quote, stress, there are neural signals, nerve signals are sent to those CRH cells in the hypothalamus, which activates them to make more CRH or release more CRH, uh, which then cascades down to cause more release of cortisol. So we, uh, one of the things that's important in talking about stress is to differentiate in the hormonal responses to stress is to differentiate between what I call acute stressors versus chronic stressors or chronic stress. So <clears throat> an acute uh, stress stressor, an acutely stressful event is something that's very limited in time. It happens, we get stressed, you know, we get, we get into a, a, an argument with, uh, with a, 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 our, you know, a family member or a, a, someone we have a, a, a partner, some, uh, whatever it might be, or a child, if you're a parent, you get in an argument and uh, you feel stressed as a result of that. And then it's over. Okay, hopefully. So that's an acute stressor. So we would see a rise if we were measuring cortisol, we would see a rise in cortisol, and then it would come back down. And there's actually a negative feedback system, acts sort of like a thermostat. So you think about the thermostat in your house is controlling the temperature. So if it gets too cold, then the thermostat kicks in the um, heat, it gets too hot, and if you have the air conditioner, it kicks in the air conditioner. So it's regulating the, the level. So similarly, uh, when cortisol levels start going up as a result of stress, a negative feedback system kicks in and it limits, starts bringing the cortisol back down with, with an acute stressor. Okay. Um, <clears throat> a, uh, a chronic stressor differs. Now here we're talking about two possible ways that we can think about chronic stress. One is where uh, a particular kind of stressful event recurs frequently, happens again and again and again. Let's say somebody unfortunately is in an abusive relationship with a, a partner or with a spouse. Um, and so they're, con they're over and over again being subjected to whatever this abuse is, physical, psychological, or both. 
or something that's unremitting, that just doesn't go away. So something like severe um, uh, food insecurity, severe uh, financial problems, can't pay your rent, can't pay your bills, um, other things that, that could be similar to that, or these natural disasters that are causing you to have, you know, problems that aren't going away for some significant period of time. What's fascinating about this for stress researchers is that when we look at um, changes in, in the adrenal gland and changes in cortisol levels over time, over time, the system can either react with um, excessive cortisol release. So if you measure it, you see it elevated over time, or, or it can actually start being blunted and the adrenal gland starts secreting less cortisol. And sorry, yeah. can I just ask here, because I know I've read this, this lower, and this lower yeah. levels is not just in response to stressors, right? This is like your baseline levels your of, baseline can be low that we need to function this kind of the effects on everything, correct? Yes. So one of the things that I, that I wanted to emphasize is people might think, well, if, if, if high levels of cortisol can be a problem, which we're kind of um, assuming or inferring from our discussion, then maybe it's good to have very low levels. And the fact is, it's not. That you need. A, so the reason why uh, our endocrine system evolved so that cortisol is released in response to an acute stressor is that's actually adaptive. That does a number of things that are good. It helps mobilize energy in the body. It prevents the immune system. The, the immune system can be activated. It prevents the immune system from uh, kind of going haywire. Like it seems to with, with COVID, you get this uh, these strong um, immune reactions to the virus. So um, cortisol damps that down. Uh, so, so it's unhealthy to have uh, uh, low baseline levels and not to be able to mount a, a stress response. And then the last thing that I want to make sure that I mention is that um, for many years uh, after cortisol was discovered, the about the only way that we could study it was to uh, measure it in the blood. And of course, it's secreted from the adrenal glands into the blood. And then in the 1980s, so this is actually some time ago, it was discovered that small amounts of cortisol get into your saliva. So they just come from the blood, they get into the glands that make saliva, and then you can measure it um, by taking a sample of somebody's saliva. And that was really a great innovation because you don't have to use needles. People don't like being stuck with a needle, might be really afraid of needles in some cases. Uh, you don't have to have a specialized person like a phlebotomist or a doctor or nurse to draw the blood. Uh, anybody can uh, just give their own saliva sample, um, simple ways of doing that. And then we can measure the cortisol. And the cortisol in the saliva tracks the amount in your blood reasonably closely. And so most um, studies of acute stress in people actually use um, a saliva cortisol measurements rather than in the blood. Okay, so we've got our background. Now, how does oh, yeah. this all happen in utero? Yeah, right. okay. <laughs> thanks, for, 
Thanks for getting me back on track. No, this was fascinating and really, really helpful because it is, I mean, it's a system I, I've read a lot on, but I think you've just given the most concise and clear explanation I've had to date. So I, that has been immensely helpful, but I still don't know how it develops in utero. Right. Yeah. Well, first of all, that's the, the benefit of having been a, a teacher uh, for many, many years. And uh, so um, you try to make things accessible and understandable. Okay. So, um, so HPA access during pregnancy. So we actually have to think about three different sort of uh, components of the pregnant woman. Uh, obviously the woman herself and her adrenal gland and HPA axis, what the whole thing is doing. We have to think about the fetus, obviously, and the fetus's own adrenal glands. And then the third thing, which is also important, is the placenta. So let's think about what's happening to all three of those things and how they intertwine over the course of pregnancy. So it's convenient to, uh, for a lot of things, to break up pregnancy into the trimesters. Okay, so um, it's about nine months. So each trimester is about three months, roughly. Um, so <clears throat> during, um, during pregnancy, over time, especially during the third trimester, the mother's HPA axis becomes more active. So the levels of cortisol that we measure in the mother, whether in her blood, her saliva, whatever it might be, uh, goes up. It starts to go up a little bit in the second trimester, and then the third trimester, it really ramps up a lot, especially uh, getting near term. And we'll talk about why, you know, the possible importance of that. Um, in the fetus, uh, the adrenal glands um, actually develop as, you know, a, as a, an organ uh, relatively early uh, in fetal development. But it isn't, and, and there is an early period, which we don't usually think about a lot. There is an early period where for a little while, the fetal adrenal starts secreting cortisol. And there may be, there's some ideas about why it might do that, but then it becomes relatively quiescent until again, into the third trimester, when the fetal adrenal starts ramping up its cortisol production. Again, especially uh, as we move further and further into the third trimester. Um, and so before we get into the placenta, the point of that is that during the first two trimesters, except for that little period uh, of fetal cortisol production, except for that, during the first two trimesters, the mother is the predominant source of cortisol that the fetal fetus is exposed to. So that's, a, that's an important thing to keep in mind. During the third trimester now, the uh, fetus's own uh, adrenal glands become uh, very important to add to whatever the mother is uh, providing. The placenta plays its own role in a couple of different ways. Uh, one thing is we talked about one of the reasons why I wanted to mention CRH. Remember, that's the hormone that comes from the cells in the hypothalamus that starts the whole system going. The placenta starts making its own CRH, placental CRH, which is the same as the CRH made by your brain. It's the same substance. 
and it goes into the mother's blood. And so that's one of the, and, and the uh, placental production of its CRH also increases during the course of pregnancy. And so it's an important contributor to this increase in the mother's cortisol production. It's being spurred on by the placenta. So yes, <laughs> this feels yeah. like the placenta is a sentient being here that is, but it doesn't have an endocrine system, does it? No, it does. It does. It does. I mean, it's an, it's an endocrine organ. Placenta is its own endocrine organ apart from your, the mother's, or yours and my, you know, my endocrine glands, the placenta is an endocrine organ. Um, so that's the first, uh, first point of what the placenta is doing. And the second, as you know, is that it moderates the amount of the mother's cortisol that gets into the fetus. And we think that's really important. We, we know that's really important. So there's an enzyme a protein that uh, catalyzes biochemical reactions. There's an enzyme in the placenta that breaks down cortisol into cortisone. It, it changes cortisol into cortisone. And cortisone is not biologically active. So um, the, so as the mother secretes cortisol and it enters the placenta, uh, a lot of that, the majority, it appears that the majority of the mother's cortisol gets um, metabolized to this inactive form before it gets through into the fetus. And that there's good reason to believe that that serves a protective mechanism and protects the fetus through most of pregnancy from excessive exposure to cortisol. Now, you might think, well, does this mean that if the mother is stressed and produces more cortisol that it doesn't get into the fetus? That's not true because the, um, I said most, but there's still significant portion of the mother's cortisol that does get into the fetus. And so when the mother um, has elevated levels of cortisol, uh, that is going to be especially highly elevated, you know, high uh, changes, that's going to be um, uh, result in increased fetal exposure. So um, strangely, the, uh, you might think strangely, the, um, as the mother, as you get near term and the mother's cortisol is high and the fetus is ramping up its cortisol, the placenta actually metabolizes less. There's a less breakdown. And so even more cortisol gets into the baby. And um, this appears to be important in general in preparation for birth, but specifically for the maturation of certain uh, fetal organs, including the lungs. So you might know, or some of your listeners might know that if a baby is born very prematurely, it usually has to be treated with steroids, like not necessarily cortisol itself, but like cortisol, because the baby's lungs are not mature enough at this point in their development. And the, the steroid that they're being given hastens that maturation. And so cortisol is doing this naturally. 
before the baby is born when it's a term or near-term birth. So I might be jumping ahead to everything we're going to talk about, but my, my brain has just kind of put a little thing, hopefully together or not, you're going to tell me I didn't put it together at all. Um, but when we talked about the low levels of cortisol, then given the importance of, it seems a bit more cortisol near the end of pregnancy, the idea of chronic stress leading to these lower levels, would that then mean that mom is not passing on as much to baby in that third trimester with chronic stress, if that is one of the effects of chronic yeah. stress? Is there a possibility that not getting enough has a adverse effect on development? Yeah, I think that's possible, but um, the uh, there might be sufficient adaptive responses of the fetus's own adrenal glands to um, counteract that. So, um, I, people have generally not worried about that possibility okay. that you raise. Okay. That's good to know oh, because it yeah. did make me wonder, you know, if you need enough of it to get yeah. these organs to develop. Okay. I think we've got a good understanding now. I feel like I do at least something. I, I have <laughs> an understanding. So <laughs> now we have to get to how it's been measured before, right. because as we talked about, there's, you've talked about in the paper, these kind of classical methods of measuring um, fetal stress really is what we're talking about in response to maternal stress, right? Mm -hmm. yeah. um, I, I will say this. I was kind of shocked that section on the limitations of this, it yeah. felt like those were a lot of limitations for something that I kind of assumed was, you know, gold standard in terms mm -hmm. of what's being done. Now, clearly your new work as we're going to get to is really changing that. But can you tell us a bit about what these methods are and why they're limited and what we can take from them? Like how this has the kind of caveats we need to put on the findings to date. Right. Yeah. Well, first, I, again, I I apologize if, if I want to backtrack a little bit first. Uh, I think that we should first uh, briefly take up the question is uh, of why are we particularly interested in uh, cortisol and as mediating the effects of stress of the mother on the baby? And the reason why I want to backtrack to that uh, broader question is because it's important for um, your listeners to keep in mind that stress produces a whole bunch of different effects. I mean, we, we all kind of know this. It produces a whole bunch of effects on the body. And so, um, including I mentioned one, namely um, adrenaline. And adrenaline actually could be one mediator of especially acute stress on um, a, a baby because it would have the effects of constricting the blood vessels going into the placenta and thereby uh, at least briefly reducing the amount of oxygen and uh, fuel, metabolic fuels that are needed by the, by the baby, by the fetus. And so that could be immediate. So, so there are a number of possible ways that stress of the mother is transmitted in a way, if you want to call it that, transmitted to the uh, offspring. So why do we focus on cortisol? So one is that we know that cortisol, at least some of it, I mentioned that a lot of it doesn't, but at least some of it does pass from the mother into the fetus. And so uh, unlike adrenaline, so adrenaline actually would not pass through the placenta. 
in case anybody was wondering about that. Uh, it would be blocked. Uh, but we know cortisol can get in a certain proportion, gets in. And so that gives us the potential that that could be a mediator. The second is that there's a lot of research from uh, animal studies in which you can separate the effects of uh, hormones like stress hormones like cortisol from all these other effects of stress, um, which we can't do in people for obvious reasons. So you could give a pregnant rat or a mouse, for example, you could either give them, um, you wouldn't give them cortisol, their version of cortisol is called corticosterone. You could give the pregnant animal corticosterone repeatedly during its pregnancy uh, or another uh, kind of similar hormone. And then look at the effects on the babies, the baby rats and mice after they're born and as they grow up. And we know from that research that uh, there are various kinds of um, deleterious effects. If the levels of the hormones given to the pregnant uh, animal are high, then there's growth restriction of the uh, infants. So the infants are born small for they're just for you know they're born smaller than normal and there are various effects on behavior which are mostly negative so um so that's really led to this hypothesis that uh cortisol could be an important mediator and one one review paper put it the culprit <laughs> if you will of maternal stress again undoubtedly not the only thing that's important but one thing that is important. So if, if we take that view, then we would want to know, if we, if we want to understand the mechanisms whereby maternal stress is transmitted to the um, offspring, then we would like to know how much cortisol is the offspring exposed to during its development in utero. And that's really asking that question is hugely problematic because how do you do this? You know, and, uh, um, and, and so there, there are, up until recent years, there have been several uh, major approaches to this, which are still being used. Um, so the, the easiest way to try to estimate how much uh, cortisol a fetus is exposed to uh, during its development in utero is to measure it in the mom during pregnancy. So um, again, going back to the idea of measuring cortisol in saliva as opposed to blood, or you can also measure cortisol that gets into urine, it's excreted in urine and so forth, but measure it in saliva. So you could measure the mom's uh, cortisol levels in her saliva across you know, the terms of pregnancy, related to her stressful experiences and use that as a proxy, as a sort of substitute for the baby's um, cortisol exposure while it was in her womb. Well, I think you can immediately from our previous discussion see two big problems with that. One is that it doesn't take into account at all the baby's own cortisol production which as I say is especially important in the third trimester. And there's a lot of important development going on, including of the brain in that third trimester. 
So that's one thing that you're lacking. The other thing is that just like everything else, uh, people are going to differ in how much their placenta breaks down the cortisol. So one woman's placenta might break down more than another's. And that's going to affect how much of her cortisol gets into the baby. And again, measuring her salivary cortisol doesn't give us any information about that. And then there are other ways that, you know, I mentioned in the paper um, that are technically more challenging and rarely done. Uh, amniocentesis, for example, you can measure cortisol in the amniotic fluid, but um, you, you, that's not done for ethical reasons because there's slight risk unless the mother needs an amniocentesis for medical reasons. So that's pretty much out as a reliable experimental tool. And other things are that, like trying to get it directly from the fetus are extremely difficult and again, risky. So that, so the, so mother measuring in the mom is the um, uh, most common way of doing it. And we've just seen that that's a big problem. It's useful. Uh, it's better than nothing, right? Because she is an important contributor to the baby's cortisol, but trying to use it as an estimate of how much, trying to quantify how much cortisol is the fetus being exposed to, um, they're just big limitations of that. And that's why we discussed that yeah. in the paper. Okay. And, and that's good to know, I think, because it is, again, it seems to always come down to this individual variation is so, I mean, both of the fetus, of the placenta, of a maternal response to stress, because that seems to be another thing of even reporting stress and how much we respond at a given, you know, individual level as well um, as to what's going on. So you have now changed that entirely. Um, I, I would like to think because this sounds like a much better method. And we're now talking about the hair and nail sampling. So as you, you kind of, you went through, there's, we have the classical methods that were really is maternal sampling. And I would say just one more thing about the amniocentesis that I just had a, a brief academic question. Would part of the problem with that too be, I would think is not only is it difficult, but if you're limited to a sample who already has a health issue from it, you're probably adding a layer of complexity to what you're getting that it's not... I mean, there's going to be higher stress as is because of the the medical conditions that might necessitate it. Um, but also, could the medical conditions themselves affect development in other ways that when we're looking longitudinally at this, is that are there other kind of medical reasons that might affect later behavior or stress response or anything like that? Right. Um, certainly that's possible. And it, obviously, it depends on the reason for doing the performing the amniocentesis. Sometimes amniocentesis might be done for genetic screening. Uh, there will be some fetal cells in the amniotic fluid that could be captured and tested genetically to see if um, there's uh, some kind of genetic anomaly uh, in the baby that uh, the parents could be concerned about. So in that case, there wouldn't necessarily be a health problem of the mother. Uh, but it, there are other reasons that, that you mentioned uh, where it could be an issue. Um, but the other the other point um, that we haven't gotten into with respect to amniocentesis is that it's what we call a point sample, mm -hmm. meaning it's a sample, a snapshot in time. 
And what we want to know about um, the transmission of stress to the fetus by cortisol, what we want to know is more cumulative exposure, exposure over time. And so a snapshot only gives us one little clue as to what that overall exposure, cumulative exposure could be. And it doesn't answer that question. All right. And, and that actually very nicely brings up um, your work on hair and nail samples. And it's really predominantly hair at this moment has been more utilized than the nail samples from my understanding. Is that correct? For adults, yes. For babies, um, a little more hair than nails, but I think nails we'll get into in our discussion, nails have some advantage yeah. perhaps for newborns. <laughs> Uh, babies, whereas hair is probably more advantageous, usually for adults. Yeah. Okay. So I like to, I, I would love to hear more about, you know, how this shows up. In my mind, when I think about the hair and nail samples, as you described it, it almost feels like a little timeline that depending upon where you look on it, you're kind of getting the history of, of stress, of peaks, valleys, whatnot, that if you could take that out and draw it. Is that correct? Is that really what you're able to glean from the sample of hair? Um, yes and no. Um, <laughs> let me again, you, you've set the stage for this beautifully, but again, um, I, I wanna just backtrack a little bit as to sort of the origin of developing this method and, and how we, we came to it um, just briefly. Uh, and again, for the benefit of your listeners, um, so who, who, who might, be wondering that this sounds very strange to get cortisol from your hair or from your nails. Um, we, we were prompted to think about this partly from uh, the field of uh, forensic uh, drug science. I think people are, many people or most people are aware that you can get uh, ideas about somebody's exposure to uh, illegal or illicit drugs uh, by getting hair samples. So this is an alternative to um, urine samples, which you know everybody knows about. And um, a urine, you know, stuff gets into your urine. Uh, drugs that you might be taking get into your urine, but the uh, urine only goes back a certain length of time. In some cases, a few weeks, sometimes less. Uh, and then you can no longer detect it. But it turns out that uh, many different illicit drugs get incorporated into growing hair. And the drug goes from your blood into the cells in your skin that make hair, which are the hair follicles, of course, get into the hair follicles and then get um, incorporated, if you will, accumulate in the hair shaft as it emerges, before it emerges from the skin, and, and therefore, and then uh, is present uh, in the hair as it continues to grow. And so that's been around for some time now. Um, and hair is also used for, sometimes, for uh, looking at exposure to various environmental pollutants or toxicants, heavy metals, pesticides, things like that, also get in your hair. So here we have the idea of exogenous substances that are not made by your body, getting into your blood and then into your hair. The idea of measuring cortisol or other hormones, that by the way, you can measure other hormones in hair as well, not just cortisol, 
uh, is just taking that idea and bringing it into um, endogenous molecules, endogenous substances, things made by your body that are in your blood and similarly can get into your, your hair. So we started this work actually uh, in collaboration with my colleague and wife, Melinda Novak, and we were um, studying um, uh, abnormal behavior in, uh, in monkeys. And uh, she had read a, a paper looking at some other uh, kind of animal in which they had measured uh, cortisol in their hair, but uh, hadn't really done a good job of validating the technique. And she wanted to see whether the monkeys that she was studying might be under stress, if you will, or more or less stress, whatever it might be. And uh, so she said, uh, do you think you could do this? And nobody had done this with monkey hair. Uh, and I said, well, we'll give it a try. I was skeptical, actually. Um, but we looked at the forensic literature on how drugs were obtained from hair. Uh, how you process the hair and extract the drugs. And we worked with that and finally came up with a way of doing it. Um, and then later on, it got uh, transferred over into doing this with humans. And so now virtually all of our research is done with uh, human hair samples, although we've done a number of other species, um, wild living uh, polar bears, um, dogs and cats, goats from a farm at UMass. So, you know, so it's true universally. Uh, other people have used it for, um, again, wild, wild living animals for conservation purposes and things like that. Okay, anyway. So the idea is, as I said, that you get a, a constant accumulation of the cortisol from mostly from the blood into the hair as it grows. Same thing with the nails. One of the things that both of these kinds of materials have in common is that they contain a protein called keratin. You probably, you know, you've probably heard of keratin. It gives the hair and the nails their brittleness, the brittle quality. It's a structural protein. So, but it also presumably helps to sort of entrap, if you will, the cortisol. So your, your question then, so now that we, we've kind of uh, talked about how this occurs coming mostly from the blood uh, into the hair as it grows. You ask, could it be a calendar? And this is a fascinating idea and one that was, um, we didn't initiate that idea, but uh, others uh, thought about the possibility of segmenting the hair. Now, human hair grows at a rate of about one, on average, one centimeter a month. So your hair is constantly growing. There's actually a cycle of hair growth. About 80 to 90% of the hair in, on your head uh, at any one time is actively growing. The other maybe 10% is, is in a resting phase. And then from there, the hair is shed. That's why when you comb your hair or you shower or something, you'll see some hair come off that's hair that's been shed and the, the follicle is gonna start a new phase, a new phase of growth. We think that the hormone is only incorporated during the growth phase of, of hair. So, um, so the idea was posed, maybe you could segment the hair. So if hair is growing at a rate of a centimeter a month, 
then the idea would be that the centimeter of hair closest to your scalp, if you cut the hair very carefully as close to the scalp as possible, that close, first centimeter should represent cortisol that was accumulated over the previous roughly a month. The second centimeter after that would be one month earlier. Then the centimeter before that would be a month earlier than that, and so on and so forth. It's a fascinating idea. And um, a number of studies have done exactly that, have taken um, hair from um, subjects in a research program, sometimes actually in response to, we talked about natural disasters, sometimes in response to a natural disaster like an earthquake. There are a couple of studies published by other researchers looking at victims of earthquakes in China uh, several years ago and uh, segmenting the hair to look at cortisol levels before and after the earthquake. That's a very cool idea. So cool. I mean, it's fascinating. However, I had to uh -oh. throw a little cold water on it. Uh, there's there's some some evidence that uh, that doesn't always hold um, that that's not always reliable uh, to uh, look at it that way for various reasons. One is that uh, one possible reason is that we know that cortisol gets leached out of your hair when you wash your hair, when it's exposed to water and shampoo. Uh, cortisol actually can get broken down. Some of the cortisol in your hair can get broken down by UV light from the sun. So there's there are processes that can affect how much cortisol remains in your hair. Uh, with respect to stress studies, it's clear that the um, that cortisol as an index of stress is strongest. That relationship between elevated cortisol and hair and stress is strongest when the hair is sampled at a time when the stress is still going on, as opposed to looking back in time. Nevertheless, as I say, there are several studies that seem to have successfully used this calendar approach. So I'm just trying to be fair to um, indicate, you know, where there are some uncertainties, possible limitations, um, and yet, you know, the, the, the calendar idea remains a possibility uh, under some conditions, perhaps. Well, it makes me think about, as I, I want to ask anyway, about for neonates, or we're looking at this, you know, to really assess fetal stress. Right. I mean, hopefully... I mean, there's the one problem of, as I'm sure we'll get to, that a lot of babies aren't born with a lot of hair right. um, is one issue. Um, the second is one you mentioned in the paper is the loss of hair in utero. Yes. So we may not get that. But on the flip side, those babies don't tend to have, I mean, I don't know many parents that use shampoo with newborns right. for a while. They're probably not exposed to a lot of UV because their skin is so sensitive. So they're right. a bit more protected from that. So would it be perhaps a bit more applicable in some ways, although again, we have the, the loss of hair and no hair for some babies, um, for neonates more than it would for say an adult. Yes, um, those, those particular kind of limitations uh, would not apply and therefore um, that's, that's a good thing. Uh, a third 
you, you mentioned a couple reasons um, that uh, access to hair in a newborn could be problematic. A third one actually is uh, parents who just won't let you touch their baby. <laughs> won't, or, or even, or even not you, but even they won't, aren't willing yeah. to cut any hair off okay. the head of their baby. And we, you know, I, I've worked with several um, developmental researchers who have found that to be the case for some of their participants. Um, you try very hard to explain, of course, this is not going to hurt the baby in any way, uh, but still some people are unwilling and that's fine. Um, but uh, anyway, so uh, as far as the loss of, of hair uh, in utero, yeah, because the first, the first growth of hair uh, is shed. I'm not sure why I don't happen to know the details of that, but it's a part of the developmental process. And then the hair, and then the hair that is present will be present uh, when the baby is born. Then starts to grow subsequently. Uh, whereas that doesn't occur with nails, as we we talk about in the paper. So that's one reason why uh, nails. And and also we we have found that um, uh, people are not usually reluctant to save nail samples. They're going to cut the nails anyway. It's and so they're not reluctant to uh, s save the nail samples and provide them for research. That was actually going to be one of my questions is, are parents who are upset about hair equally not cutting the nails? Because it feels like at some point you've got to, those babies get little knives as nails at yeah. the certain stage there. So so you overcome that limitation as well. Yes. The, the, um, the fingers, we all know, the fingers and the toes are really, really tiny. And so the nail samples are really small, but we've been able to uh, work with um, neonatal nails and most recently uh, another uh, hair project um, where at least there was enough hair in the large majority of samples. Uh, this was a project with uh, 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 Alicia Davis at the uh, University of Denver in Colorado. And um, so we, we reported, we've reported the cortisol levels in those neonatal hair samples back to her. We, we don't know yet the uh, overall outcome of the study, but uh, it shows that with sensitive analytical methods and with um, being able to, having developed procedures that maximize uh, the uh, use of each sample, that none of the sample is lost in the processing. So even if it's just a few milligrams of hair or nails, we can usually be able to um, measure the amount of cortisol present. And when you're measuring the amount of cortisol present, how far back is that going in utero? Like, are we talking about, can you get it from the first trimester or right. what, what stages are you getting? Right, so that's, that's a really, that's a significant limitation. So this is why, um, for example, uh, looking at maternal cortisol, whether it's in saliva or in mother's hair, which you know is being done now uh, in some studies, um, why 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 uh, sampling of the baby will never completely replace um, mother um, samples is because you you can't go all the way back through the pregnancy. If you think about it logically. The first limitation, the most significant limitation, is when does the hair and the nails first start growing? 
And we mentioned that the first hair that grows in the baby, which is maybe um, mid-pregnancy or something like that, or late in the second trimester, uh, falls out. So you don't have access to it. Uh, and then the second doesn't really start growing until we're into the third trimester. So hair for the uh, newborn is telling you about, potentially telling you about cortisol accumulation during mainly the third trimester. Nails go back a little bit further, we think, because they start growing uh, earlier and um, they don't get shed. So we don't really know anything about the process of accumulation of cortisol in nails or hair. But what I can tell you is this, especially with respect to hair, the levels, the, the amount of cortisol per weight or per amount of hair is really high in the baby compared to the mom. So it's many, many times higher. So and what does that yeah, say? Right. So we, we first we first saw that actually with baby monkeys, newborn baby monkeys that we were able to get hair from. And we were astounded at how it was in some cases maybe like 10 times as high as the mother's hair, uh, cortisol. So um, it's not, you know, so we don't want to be misled because um, researchers that have actually studied the amount of cortisol in the blood of the fetus have found that it's lower than the mom's. So the, so the, the amount of cortisol that's circulating in the baby's blood uh, in utero is actually relatively low compared to the amount that's in the mom's blood. But the accumulation of cortisol in the hair is very high. So there's a couple of, we don't know for sure why that is. There's a couple of plausible explanations. One is that think about the fact that the fetus is bathed in the amniotic fluid. And I mentioned that there's cortisol in the amniotic fluid. It's relatively low, but this is constant exposure, constant exposure to a cortisol-containing solution. So that's possibly an important source of cortisol on these high levels. The second is maybe it gets into the baby's hair more easily, more readily than it gets into the hair of an adult from the bloodstream. We don't know. But. So can you use, one of the things I was thinking of with this is whether it's the nails or the hair, can it tell you some of that individual, um, how best to put this? When we talked earlier about using maternal sources, we say they're not necessarily a good proxy for legitimate reasons of fetal levels of stress. But if we now have both, can we start to ascertain at an individual dyad level how good a proxy each of them are to each other in terms of understanding, like for a given, oh, look, this mom's placenta probably is filtering out more because baby has X levels and mom has Y levels. Um, whereas for this dyad, perhaps that the placental functioning is less optimal because of what's happening. Does that make sense? Am I? Yeah, I, I'd like to think we that we could do that. I'm not sure that we could 
be that um, detailed uh, to, to make that much of a leap or that much of an inference. I think what's reasonable is, and what I'd like to see emerging as the field progresses is uh, more studies measuring the mother's hair cortisol, in this case, especially during the third trimester. I mean, you can do it, you know, ideally you do it at each trimester, at the end of each trimester. And remember that, that um, if you got three centimeters of hair, that should be roughly three months of growth, three months of accumulation. So at the end of each trimester should be uh, some indicator of how much cortisol she was producing over that, that trimester. So if we, if we have the mother's third trimester, <clears throat> which would be hair taken around the time of delivery or you know, soon after delivery, uh, and then we relate that to the amount of cortisol in the um, uh, newborn's hair, for example, which again, we're saying is mostly a third trimester, we could start asking how well, how well do they correlate? And um, if they're disparate, then if one's higher than expected, I mean, again, they're not going to be they're not going to be the same because, as I said, the the baby's cortisol levels are going to be much higher. But the point is the relationship between them compared to an average relationship, an average ratio, or whatever it might be. Um, maybe we could get some idea about these different processes that you alluded to. Um, but it wouldn't just be the placenta. Again, it could be the amount of fetal production of cortisol that's contributing to the fetus's hair or nail cortisol. So you still can't isolate one mechanism over the other. If you want to get at the, at the placenta, you can. Um, you can collect the placenta for research purposes, obviously with informed consent of the mother. And you can take placental tissue and measure how much of this uh, metabolizing enzyme is present. And that would be great. I mean, you know, think about studies where if, if somebody had the ability to do that, you have the mother's hair and the, the baby's uh, hair and placental tissue that you analyze you could start getting more information about how these mechanisms are interrelating. Uh, I don't know of a single study yet that's done that. So this is why you can't retire, because that's what you <laughs> suppose should be doing next. It's, it's there. Very funny. Very um, yeah. I only half joking, but um, <laughs> but so okay. So when we take a look at these different, and, and I want to be cognizant of your time, and I realize, do you have a bit more time to go into a couple more questions? Sure. Okay. What is the story being told when we're comparing these methods? Because that's really the crux of this, is that we've had yeah. this idea of stress based on these kind of classical methods of just mom. And now we have this whole new ways of looking at this that is far more detailed that get us to the actual fetus as opposed to just the mom. But what story does that tell us about prenatal stress right. and development and outcomes? Yes. Um, so I knew, I knew you were going to get into that. Um, so, uh, you know, I gave that some extra thought and, and refreshing my memory about the, uh, about this literature. It's so I think there's two points that I want to make. The first is that it's really too early in the game 
using fetal, uh, well, not fetal, but newborn uh, hair or uh, nail measurements, it's way too early to um, start forming firm conclusions about what that's going to tell us. Obviously, there are several published studies, um, mostly not from uh, my lab, even though we've been using this method. We haven't yet um, been involved in, in the early publications using it for this specific purpose. Uh, but there have been um, several published papers from other research groups looking at the relationship between maternal stress and um, uh, outcome of the um, pregnancy that or, or the offspring and also the hair or nail cortisol levels or this other hormone, DHEA. I, I don't know how many th things I want to throw out there this other adrenal hormone that does get into your hair and nails as well. But um, still the literature, the number of studies is still very small. And similar to the much larger literature on relating maternal cortisol, however you measure it, to um, the pregnancy outcome and to the HPA axis in the offspring, there's just not a, enough consistency. There, there are some, some conclusions you can draw, but even, um, even one that, that I had thought was pretty much resolved, especially given the animal research, that elevated cortisol in moms during pregnancy might be related, again, on average, to birth weight. Okay, again, with the idea from the animal research of high levels of steroids being related to intrauterine growth restriction, I thought, well, this is presumably going to be true in people too. And uh, reviews of that literature have found a very tenuous, very weak relationship between mother's cortisol levels, again, over a number of studies. Some studies find it, other studies do not find that on average birth weight is for gestational age is reduced when the mother has high cortisol levels. So it's not as consistent as we would like it to be. And when you start looking at things like um, uh, child um, psychological development, psychomotor development, um, IQ, uh, emotionality, temperament, Again, there are a number of positive findings and a number of things that don't, you know, studies that don't reach the same conclusion. So um, the, um, and, and this is likely for several reasons. And, and this is not unique, by the way, to this literature. As, as you know, from your own background and training, um, human, uh, humans, we vary so much, number one, in our individual differences. And then there are differences in how studies are conducted. So uh, some variability in results are due to studies being done differently, how you obtain your you know, participants, what you measure, when you measure it, if you're doing cortisol, how, what you're measuring the cortisol in, when you're measuring it, if it's saliva, for example. And then the third thing is simply that um, 
as we know, and have come to realize more and more, unfortunately, is that some of the findings um, in any area of science are just simply um, spurious. Um, they're, they're simply not reliable. That is to say, meaning that a, a, another experiment trying to reproduce the finding doesn't get it. And that's why we need to be confident we need in whatever research we're doing, we need to have multiple findings that converge on the same outcome, the same result. And that starts giving us confidence. It seems to me like what you've done with these methodologies are going to, in my mind, it will allow a greater exploration of these individual differences. Uh, and, and I do think that's kind of a, a, personally, I feel like individual differences have to be a large focus of a lot of areas of research going forward, because as great as averages are, as we know, there are, there's large variability. Do you see these methods being able to help us hone in on some of these individual differences and why certain studies may have be as mixed as they have been? I think it's, I think it's possible um, that's not something that, I, that I've given a, a lot of thought to, how using uh, hair cortisol or nail cortisol could, um, uh, could be used in that way. I will say that, um, speaking of individual differences, that the range of just cortisol levels in hair, apart from difference between the newborn baby being much higher than the mom, just within a group of a relatively homogeneous, we think, group of adults, the range of levels is enormous of how much cortisol is in your hair, um, much more so than in any animal species we've looked at. Really? I know, it's remarkable. It's remar it strikes me over and over again. No matter, again, we've done more than half a dozen different species. And when we just look at the, the, the variability, the range of levels, it's just much greater in people. Uh, from study to study, even using the exact same methods, but even within a study, many studies have a wide range of levels. So we don't know yet. So individual variability is a, a really a fascinating idea with respect to this. Um, but right now it's, a, it's an unknown dimension. We thought at the beginning, no, we learned early on that uh, cortisol can be taken out of hair by washing. And we thought that that would be an important variable to keep track of when you were getting hair samples from people to ask them, how often do you wash your hair? So on and so forth. We don't know what the source of this uh, individual variation is, but uh, it's something that would, uh, we thought, as I was saying, that um, looking at the amount of uh, hair washing could be important. And we routinely ask people to look at that, but it's turned out not to be a significant predictor of the amount of cortisol, um, surprisingly. So there, there must be other sources of variation and maybe I, I'm going to throw another monkey wrench into the into the discussion here, which I'm prone to do. Uh, and that is, I, I've been careful to say throughout the discussion, the conversation, that 
uh, most of the cortisol we believe is coming from the blood. However, um, there's a little mini, mini HPA axis in your hair follicle. Uh, yes, I know. It's definitely a monkey wrench. So, um, so it's likely, we don't know how much, it's likely that some of the cortisol in your hair is coming from local production and not as opposed to from the bloodstream. We still believe for several reasons that the majority of the cortisol in your hair is from your blood, uh, which we think is important for use of this technique in the ways that we've been discussing it. Um, the accumulation being related to how much cortisol your adrenals are putting out, but some of it may well be from the hair follicle itself. And so maybe some of this variability is related to uh, differences in local production of cortisol. Nobody knows, and it would be very difficult to try to answer that experimentally. I had no idea my hair could get stressed. That feels <laughs> like <laughs> it's its your, own your thing. Your skin does lots of things that, that you, you may not be aware of. Uh, the skin is a very fat, it's an organ itself. Yeah. It's a very fascinating organ. So. Our largest organ. So, yes, well, right. this has been so wonderful. I mean, hugely informative. And it feels like we're on the cusp of this is like a really new kind of like when you started, there's this new technique we're looking at. And it feels like you've just created this new technique where there's so many avenues to go in the future with this that, I mean, hopefully we'll answer more questions and probably build up a lot more questions too as we go, as it tends to do. Um, but before we go, are you doing any follow-up work in this field? What you know are you working on? I know you say you're retiring, but it's not wholly complete, right? Like you're still going to be doing right. some work going on. Yeah. Well, yes, uh, and and I'd be happy to spend a second talking about that. But before so, I just I want to uh, emphasize uh, with respect to the development of this technique uh, two things. First of all, uh, of course, the important role of my students and, and collaborators, but also other labs that have played important roles in the development and, and the use of of this technique, especially um, my uh, my friend uh, Clemens Kirschbaum in Germany. Uh, who's been a, a tremendous um, uh, researcher in this area. And uh, I, I want to give him um, um, <clears throat> credit for, for what his group has done. Okay, uh, as far as new stuff, yeah, we're, we're working on a, something a little different. It's not developmental, but I, I think your viewers, I'm sorry, your listeners would be interested in this. Um, so I mentioned that in the 1980s, cortisol was discovered to get in your saliva. So it also gets into your sweat. And that's been known for a little while. Um, and so we had the idea, nobody else has jumped on this really. I mean, th th there are some groups that are trying to develop a real-time sensor, a wearable device that would measure your, the amount of cortisol in your sweat on, you know, as, you, as you go through your day-to-day -day existence, which would be really cool, but is very challenging um, for several reasons. We're taking a slightly different approach that I think is, is unique. Um, just like in forensic science, we got the idea of measuring cortisol in hair. Uh, we got the idea of um, drugs can be measured in sweat, drug uh, use. And there's a company that makes a wearable patch, the skin patch. You put it on, wear it for a week, usually a week to 10 days. And then you take it off, you send it into the company, and they send it out to an analytical lab, which looks for screens for drugs. 
So since cortisol is in sweat, we had the idea, what about using this patch to see if we could get the amount of cortisol that's in your sweat that accumulates over a week? And the idea would be that, so we have saliva, which gives you a snapshot of the amount of cortisol that's in your system now. We've got the hair and nails, which go a month or several months, but we've got this gap in between time-wise, and this gives us a week. So we develop, we've, we've already shown that we can get the cortisol, we can measure it, uh, we can relate it to the amount of sweat that you've produced. And now we're doing the last part of this, which is to see whether the amount of cortisol that your body produces over a week while you're wearing the patch as determined by saliva measurements correlates with the amount of cortisol we can get out of the patch. So we think that this could be useful in a lot of contexts um, where, where you'd wanna know week by week what's happening, maybe a stress reduction intervention, maybe other kinds of uh, situations where you want to track changes in cortisol over shorter time periods than months. So that's what we're working on is a, is a sweat patch cortisol method. Oh my God, that's fascinating. And it's true. Yeah, week by week. I mean, you think about mindfulness techniques that people try to promote. These aren't things that happen over three months or over 20 minutes. It's something that happens over, you know, days and weeks, days and weeks that you need to kind of be practicing and seeing the effects. That is fascinating. And would that work with babies too? Just out of cheer. I mean, I'm going to go back to the developmental here and say, yeah. Is there uh, we haven't tried it, but but I don't see any reason why it wouldn't. That people would be willing to put the patch on their baby. Right, that's the other question. Is <laughs> now you've got parents that won't cut hair. Patches <laughs> on. Yes. So, oh my goodness. Well, that is really interesting. When do you think that will be ready? You're looking at. Well, that. we're hoping. Yeah. Um, the the study relating it to salivary cortisol is ongoing right now, and of course, we're also taking measurements of perceived stress. That is psychological stress and. Uh, depression and anxiety symptoms and things like that. And this is, as is often done in these kinds of studies, is being done with university students. So um, we, um, we're hoping to have, have this wrapped up by, uh, by the end of the summer, um, okay. but we'll see. That's well, hope. I think it's fascinating. I am so happy you guys have jumped into this foray and really started something that, you know, hopefully will continue um, even when you decide to step away more permanently from this. Um, although it sounds like you'll get sucked back in quite regularly. So, <laughs> but thank you. oh yeah, you will. I believe it. Um, <laughs> thank you so much again for this. This has been absolutely enlightening and fascinating. And I just thank you for your research in this, that the ingenuity of these methods coming out and kind of, and, and for highlighting for everyone, I want to just thank you specifically for highlighting at the beginning that kind of comfort for families to not stress about stress. I probably, you know, could have said that better, but to not stress about stress, that you yes. can change things. The outcomes are are varied based on what we do. We do have some control, even if you are in a very, you know, extreme stressful circumstance in pregnancy, there are ways out of it. So I thank you for reassuring families for that as well. Cause I know it, it is reassuring to hear that um, when you've been through it. So Thank you for your work. I am very excited to hear what happens with the uh, with the stress over one week. And do those techniques really work to reduce your stress? That's what I want to know because yeah. <laughs> fascinating. Exactly. 
Well, thank you very much for having me. Uh, I really enjoyed our conversation. That's it for this week. Thank you for listening. I hope you may feel a bit better about any stress you may have experienced in pregnancy and have a greater understanding of how difficult this is to examine thoroughly. Join me next week as I talk to Dr. Jay Belsky about a topic near and dear to my heart, differential susceptibility, or as you may think of it, the orchid versus the dandelion phenomenon. His findings and insights may surprise you, but they can certainly help us understand how we engage with children of different temperaments. In the meantime, stay safe and happy parenting.